0: Welcome once again to Veneco Candanga, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements. I'm your host, Juan Andres Miesle, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jennifer McCoy. She's a professor of political science at Georgia State University and served as director of the Carter Center's America's Program overseeing elections in Venezuela from 1998 to 2015. Dr. McCoy is also a recognized conflict analyst and international mediator during the various political crises in Venezuela throughout the last two decades. The most recent book, co authored by Francisco Diaz, is International Mediation in Venezuela. Dr. McCoy, thank you kindly for speaking with us today. Thank you for inviting me. You were the director of the Carter Center's Americas program during key periods in Venezuela's electoral history. As mentioned, you not only helped monitor elections for well over a decade in Venezuela, but you also helped mediate the ongoing crisis that pinned the opposition against the Chavez government between 2002 and 2004. What is something you think a lot of observers don't get from your insider perspective during those years? And what were some important takeaways from your role as an international mediator in Venezuela? Well, it was, a, it was a tough situation
1: because it was trying to solve a political conflict that had not turned violent, but many, many people and analysts were concerned about the potential for violence. So, we were trying to help the country and help both sides to come to some kind of understanding about the demands and the grievances that each side held um, that could both avoid a violent conflict but also protect the democracy. What we learned was that the polarization was already so deep that both sides in the political conflict essentially wanted to eliminate the other, it seemed, rather than seek an accommodation of some form of coexistence. And that made it very difficult. So each of the conflicts, the parts of the conflicts as they emerged, whether it was major protests or the petroleum strike or eventually the recall referendum, people from the outside, I think, were seeing more as a normal election to measure strength of either side and to help to resolve the question of who should lead the country for the next Three years, the remainder of Hugo Chavez's term. At that point, whereas inside the country, the opposition and the government were both seeing it as as a very high-stakes election that would determine a definitive winner and loser. That. Could, could essentially eliminate the power and the role and the influence of the other. And so that made it really difficult to come to a, a position where both sides could consider mutual guarantees and different forms to reassure the continued rights and the continued existence as political entities after that referendum, depending on who won. And I think that lesson is very important for today as well in trying to look at what might be a means of resolving this conflict. When both sides see it as such an existential threat in an existential conflict, that it's hard to, to imagine a situation of being out of power either direction. And so that, that makes it very
0: difficult to find an accommodation and agreement for moving forward. A lot of outside observers, particularly those with a more sympathetic view towards the Venezuelan government, consistently point out former President Jimmy Carter's comments years ago that Venezuela had the best election process in the world. Does the Carter Center continue to hold this view, or has anything changed that might have caused President Carter and his team at the Carter Center to reconsider these statements?
1: Well, you know, that's been quoted quite extensively, particularly by the government, because it supports their point of view. But that quote is taken completely out of context, and it was a response to a question actually about the Mexican elections and about U.S. elections and controversies in those two countries. What he was talking about were the uh, voting machines and comparing it with the United States, where in many states, including my own state of Georgia, uh, we vote on similar touchscreen machines, but there's no paper printout, and so people can't verify their vote. So he was talking about the Quality of the voting machines and the audits and the controls in which uh, the the political opposition had been participating in in most of the elections until recently. That's what he was referring to. On the other hand, the Carter Center in uh, missions that I led and and wrote extensive reports about uh, documented the the very unlevel playing field, the very unfair conditions of the electoral process, particularly the campaign, the finance, the access to the media, intimidation, all, all of these kinds of things, we had been very, very critical of that. Now, in the last year, I think we've seen, in the last two years, an even further deterioration of the electoral system in Venezuela as the CNE has become very, very clearly Uh, partisan, and doing the bidding of the government, calling elections without proper time period, um, changing the rules, and even engaging in what looks like actual fraud in terms of changing vote counts for the first time. Looking first at the the constituent assembly election in July of 2017, when they apparently magnified the numbers of the turnout, Um, and then after that, in the state of Bolivar, when it looked like they changed the actual numbers of some of the voting stations that were, that were done manually, it certainly has deteriorated to the point now that I can understand why, why many people have very little confidence in the CNE and e as a body and in the process.
0: Let's fast forward now to the latest round of talks actively promoted by former Spanish Prime Minister Jose Rodriguez Zapatero. Are there any differences between the dialogue processes during your tenure at the Carter Center and those with the UNASUR and Zapatero attend of conflict resolution?
1: Well, yes. Back in two thousand two there was a consensus among the international community of the United Nations, the OAS, and in the member states of the OAS that democracy needed to be protected and that there should be some kind of negotiated resolution to the conflict then. After that, the OAS itself became split and paralyzed, uh, polarized really, similar to the polarization inside of Venezuela. So the region became polarized and OAS then became ineffective as a potential uh, mediator. And other organizations like UNASUR and CELAC you know, came, came onto the scene where there was not the same kind of broad international consensus about the role of the collective defense of democracy for the region. Both sides, in any conflict, it's natural that they look for outside allies, for international allies. But when the international community is itself split, then that makes it easy to find outside allies to kind of bolster your own position and resist the need to make concessions and to make compromises to try to reach an agreement. Now, this last round in late 2017, early 2018 in the Dominican Republic showed an, an improvement in the possibilities because the two sides, the Maduro government and, and the Mu, of course, agreed on a set of countries that could serve as the friends and the observers of that dialogue. And So that was helpful, and that was similar to what we had back in 2002. And then the president of the Dominican Republic seemed to do a pretty good job of getting the confidence of both sides there. But Prime Minister Zapatero then lost the confidence of the, of the opposition in the, the final kind of proposals that he made to try to persuade them to, to, to join in. From what I could see, the early proposal in December made by the five Friends countries you know, seemed like a pretty reasonable uh, proposal, and in fact was done by the countries that were both chosen by the government and by the opposition. So I was sorry that that didn't come to to a resolution.
0: So what lines should be drawn between economic and political negotiations? Can one be done without the other? Because it seems that dialogue efforts by Rodriguez Zapatero consistently demanded that the opposition abandon any path to legitimate political aspirations in exchange for economic policy changes that never fully materialize. Do you find this to be conducive to any substantial breakthrough, or is there something missing here?
1: The situation's complex in that now the you know the country is in a is in a much more dire situation economically and socially than it was. And if you compare the 2002 period, but in the 2002 period it had also had really severe uh, disruptions with the coup attempt and greater balance of forces in the sense of the government controlled some institutions but not all, like they do today. The opposition controlled still a lot of institutions, including half of the Supreme Court, most of the private media, and a large part of the economy. The private sector was still pretty strong. That's another major difference between then and today. So today, because of the the need to urgently address the economic situation and the social situation with the refugees and and the medical crisis as well, that's been difficult for the dialogues to figure out how to address that along with the demands for political change. Whether economic change can be carried out without political change, you know, is another question. I think it's it's possible that a dialogue could result in an agreement on immediate, urgent changes to economic policy and allowing in aid and helping the refugees and helping the medical crisis, etc., and then move to the political. But I also understand that many people feel like the political is urgent and that there must be a regime change. So I think we've seen a conflict between those two positions that has also made it difficult to get an
0: agreement. Do you think then that it'll take something like the social meltdown caused by hyperinflation to fully address the economic and political deficits present in Venezuela? What else is really needed to convince Maduro to capitulate?
1: Let me talk about the the bad news first in terms of, you know, another precedent that people often mention when when talking about Venezuela, but that is in fact Zimbabwe, which did have hyperinflation up into the billions of percent, even worse than Venezuela is facing today. The same government survived that, resolved it, by dollarizing the economy, and continued to survive up until last year, using repression, using co-optation of opponents. At one point, it negotiated power sharing, but it was really a co-optation of the opponents. Even such a dire economic situation as billions of percent of high, hyperinflation did not cause the downfall of that government. So that's the bad news for those who are expecting that a social falling off the abyss will, will lead to a change in the political regime. On the other hand, the international pressure from the sanctions, I think, has been tightening the noose um, around the economy and around the maneuverability of the government. The Chinese government's helped them out recently with a little bit more financial possibilities, you know, another loan and a little bit of investment. Every time that happens, that can add on to the ability of the government to survive a little bit longer. But overall, the trend is certainly going downhill in terms of the maneuverability uh, economically unless they begin to make some major changes. So there is that pressure that, that could bring about some kind of you know willingness to negotiate some kind of change. On the other hand, in this situation, as we started out talking, the stakes are high, and the stakes are very high for this government, to think about leaving power and the retribution that they would face, the possibility of either extradition to the United States to face justice for those who have been accused of of crimes by the United States, or facing justice within Venezuela. The very real possibility of that happening to many of the high-level government and military officials certainly gives them an incentive to dig in and and stay in power, unless they were to receive some kind of signals or reassurances that there there could be some alternatives to that. And that's why uh, I and others have talked about this concept of transitional justice, which is often needed in a situation like this, either moving from an authoritarian regime, and I do count Venezuela as an authoritarian regime today, or moving from civil conflicts. These are transitory forms of justice to allow that kind of of transition. It's not impunity. It's conditional sentencing, usually, that requires some kind of reparations by the perpetrators of uh, human rights abuses or high corruption or violence crimes. Reparations is part of it, acknowledgement of responsibility, giving truth and information about what's happened and what's happened to the victims. Under transitional justice, certain conditions, then sentencing might be reduced or alternative kinds of sentencing might be proposed. For some very specified situations, that could help
0: to move toward a negotiated solution. There also seems to be an interesting social conjuncture at play here. Many regular Venezuelans see these negotiations as a massive exchange of non-binding favors by competing elites that translate to a negligible impact in people's livelihoods, and by extension, distancing the political leadership from the grassroots and the pedagogy needed to orient a mass movement. What can be done to mitigate this distancing? How can grassroots movements take control of their demands without having them co-opted by technocratic elites ready to negotiate their demands away?
1: I think right now is the, the moment. Uh, in Venezuela for a grassroots movement, for the civil society, for social movements, to organize, to mobilize, to take action, to make proposals. The political actors have become exhausted. Well, I know the people in general have become exhausted from the situation, obviously, but the political actors, particularly in the opposition, I think have kind of exhausted the form that they had been following in, in their coalition in the move because of Disagreements over the proper strategy, disagreements over leadership, and now we've just seen Acción Democrática is withdrawing, and even um, you know the Chavista side—either those who have already broken with Maduro or those uh, continued you know supporters who are concerned about the direction of the country and their own situations. I think it's the time for the people. To, to be organizing and try, try to reach out as much as possible to get as broad a coalition as possible of people who simply are saying, we need to survive and there has to be a change. And the political leadership, you know, has not represented us and we demand a change, and, and, you know, particularly to the government because obviously they have the biggest
0: responsibility for the welfare of the people, but also to the opposition side. In your view, what is the minimum amount of electoral conditions you think Venezuelans should accept during an election process in Venezuela, as things stand right now?
1: The minimum amount now is, is simply to go back to even the situation of 2015 for the National Assembly elections, when the political parties participate in, in the entire process, in the audits, the controls, when the timelines are followed properly, when there's a chance to actually register to vote. You know, over the years of monitoring elections in many countries, when there's suspicion of an electoral authority, what really matters is not kind of where they came from or what their partisanship was, but how they behave. The problem now with this election authority is that they have demonstrated so much partisanship that it's, I think, nearly impossible for them to regain sufficient trust. And so that it will have to be changed and there will need to be international observation to provide a sufficient level of confidence to move forward. Another thing is the disqualification of candidates has to change because a minimal condition is that people have to be able to run. Those are minimal conditions for acceptable election process. I have also argued that under a um, an authoritarian regime with elections, what's often called a competitive authoritarian regime, when the playing field is not level, when the advantage of the government is extreme, that it's still worth participating even to demonstrate the level of manipulation or unfairness of an election and to, to be able to document that. And because sometimes authoritarians lose elections and they're surprised about it if they get overconfident. They, they can lose. So I have argued that it's worth participating even in unfair conditions.
0: What is your view on the hardline opposition's proposal to demand Maduro's resignation? The hardliners in the Soy Venezuela alliance think that so long as Maduro is in power, no changes, be them economic or political, can be done. They see a government sustained by a currency exchange regime that allows corrupt officials to amass great power and resources and are perhaps better able than anyone else to engage as black marketeers in the trafficking underworld don't they have a point in recognizing that the permanence of Maduro in power is contingent on continuing these policies that deeply hurt the population and that a more frontal confrontation with the government is the only way to eventually achieve some sort of true government accountability?
1: Certainly, the government seems very much compromised in terms of having already protected and engaged in criminal activity. That organized crime is very high in Venezuela, whether they're, are actors who can blackmail the president himself or whether he is simply having to allow the criminal activity to continue in order to preserve his own position in power. You know, Either way, certainly the government is compromised. That doesn't mean that he couldn't decide to make some changes in the economic policy. So you're asking, is, is he stuck? Is he caged in? by the people who are benefiting from the corruption of the current regime such that he couldn't make any changes and lessen that ability to gain from that corruption. Right. Uh, yes, that, that may be true. But he could make some changes uh, to lessen the suffering of the people. That may be what should be the first step in terms of pressure from both inside and outside the country, to make those minimal changes, just to relieve the suffering of the people, which gets worse you know, every single day. So I don't think that anyone should expect that there can be no change until Maduro is gone, because there can be change now. But it's, it's gonna take continual pressure, and I agree with those who say it can't come just from the outside. And I know Venezuelans are tired and exhausted and sick and hungry, but there's a real temptation for Venezuelans to, to wait for a savior of some sort, for something to happen, whether that's a military coup or a military invasion or, or something. It's it got to take pressure from the inside as well. It can't be solved just from the outside. So that's my final thing, which is, which is difficult to say, because I know it's very difficult to organize. It's difficult to spend time figuring out how to organize politically and when, when you can't even eat or feed your children. It's extremely difficult.
0: It's been a very fruitful and deeply insightful conversation. You know, my guess is that effective economic and political change will only come when the grassroots and civil society take a firmer stance on what is negotiable and what is not, and what line ultimately gets drawn in the sand, be it in the sandy beaches of Santo Domingo or in the more immediate proximities of Venezuela. I want to thank my guest, Jennifer McCoy, professor of political science at Georgia State University, former director of the Carter Center's Americas program, conflict analyst, and co-author of International Mediation in Venezuela. Dr. McCoy, thank you for speaking with us.